We are in Ephesians chapter 1, into verse 6 through verse 10. The Trinity's plan, the meaning of redemption. End of 6 through 10. Glory of His grace which He freely bestowed on us in the Beloved. In Him we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of His grace which He lavished on us in all wisdom and in insight. He made known to us the mystery of His will according to His kind intentions which He purposed in Him with a view to the administration suitable to the fullness of times, that is, the summing up of all things in Christ Things in the heavens and things on earth in him. Father, we come before you and ask for your wisdom and for your time to show us um, truly one of the greatest things that humanity has ever known and yet is so neglected. Father, help us each to be overwhelmed. Help us to stand in awe at the awesomeness of what you have done. And that, Father, we, as we look at this, we see it was planned before the foundations of the world. And each of us who stand this day are part of the fulfillment of that plan. Help us. Help us to be overwhelmed, but help us to be thrilled. We love you. We praise you. We are looking at one word. In verse 7, redemption, redemption. I shared with you that there are two words that we translate in the Greek last week in redemption. And one means to buy out of a marketplace. The other means to buy to set free. To buy to set free is what we are looking at in this text. There was a purchase. It is done usually on the slave block. A master will... Sell a slave and someone will come in and buy that slave. But the key to this is that he did not buy this slave to have a new tool because that's what a slave was, was just a tool. He bought this to set it free. Sometimes you see that in translated in the New Testament, a bond servant. And a bond servant is a servant who the master has set free, but the slave does not want to leave the home. So they'll pierce their ear to prove that they are free men who choose to stay under this master. A lot of times when you look in the New Testament, you'll see that we use that term bond servant. And the truth of the matter is, in most translations, it's not in there. It means a slave. Slave owned by a master. Owned by a master. Why? You were purchased. If you're a believer this day, you were a slave to sin. And you have been bought and paid for with the price. Okay. When Jesus Christ says on the cross, it is finished. Do you understand what he's saying? It's not like really close. It is finished. Why? He went to the slave block and bought you. Not because you're cute. Not because you're strong. Not because you have potential. He did it because before the foundations of the earth, the Trinity made a plan. We call it today the body of Christ. And he, before the foundations of the earth, placed those that would be called after his name into the body of Christ. You need to understand this. And and, and I and I watch people struggle with it. I had a conversation just this week with some men and they did not understand who their master was. Or perhaps their master is. Okay, it is not Satan. It is not any of They've got guys out there now who are starting to name demons. And I'm like, you guys really need to find something else to do. It ain't any of those. Your old master is sin. You know what's in the center of sin? I. You don't need a demon to tempt you. You have lust of the eyes, lust of the flesh, and the pride of life. You don't have to go to school to learn those. You have them, you possess them, and you wield them. And they are your master. Sin always tells you how great it's going to be. 
but it's never is. It's never fulfilling. And it causes consequences that you probably never even thought of. But now you have been bought and paid for. You are not owned by your old master. I hear people tell me, well, I'm an alcoholic or what? I'm a recovering alcoholic. And I said, no, you're an idolater. What? You're an idolater. You want that more than you want anything else. Back to who is your master? Sin. Okay. You wake up with a hangover. Guess what? That's the consequence. But see, the night before, you thought it was going to be awesome, didn't you? You're going to be 12 foot tall and bulletproof. But it don't work that way. And that's the way sin works. Last week, we looked at the definition. We have been bought and paid for with the price. Hebrews chapter 2, verse 14. You have been delivered from the bondage of sin and death. The penalty of sin is always the same. What is it? Death. And that holds men captive for whatever reason. And, and, you know, we can go through our lives and we can look at it and say, every time that I have pursued sin, the consequences were not known to me and I did it anyway. Or in some cases, the consequences was known and I thought I could get a different set of consequences. And you didn't. You get the same ones. You get the same ones. I shared with the Sunday school class this morning, a, a dear family that attends my mother's church whenever I would go back to my mom's, they would know I was in town and the family would come by and see me. Wonderful people. Spirit of the Lord is all over them. Andy and Emily had a 16-year-old daughter, 13-year-old daughter, and 11-year-old son. Wonderful kids. Wonderful. Just, I mean, you just enjoyed being around them and you could talk theology and the love of the Lord and what was the Lord doing and how is your church and how is your Sunday school class and they're always in this. And just recently... I forgot her name. The daughter got her learner's permit. Dun, dun, dun. And mom and the two kids decided they'd go out. There's some country roads out where my, my mom lives. And they would get out there and spend some time behind the wheel. She pulled out in front of a semi and was killed instantly. Mom's in the hospital in intensive care, unaware of everything that's going on. And I think about poor Andy with two little young kids preparing the funeral of his daughter. Without the help of his wife. And yet these people walked with the king. What happened? Penalty of sin is what? Dang, nobody gets out of this thing alive. And none of them get out of this alive. I remember uh, my dear friend Ed stepped into glory. I asked him before his last surgery. I said, what would you pray? He says, Terry, if I can't come back and serve the church in the capacity I have right now, then let me go home. God answered the prayer. He went home. I envy him. But that's sin. That is sin. It is all around us. And yet we don't ever want to talk about it. I actually heard a pastor this week use the term morally challenged. And I was like, you have got to be kidding me. It is sin. And then the word that came out of my thoughts the next was stupid. And I thought, well, that's sin too. <laughs> but, but you just, you stop for a second. You're like, no, there's no such thing as morally challenged. I go back to the shackles of sin. So last week I gave you the basic definition of what this word means. You have been freed from the shackles, from the chains, from the bondage, from the captivity of sin. You are not in the process of being freed. You are freed. You now have a new master. Okay. Now you may not know him. You may not understand him. You may not recognize him. But it still doesn't mean it ain't true. What sin can a Christian not overcome? There isn't any. There isn't any. But you can talk yourself into it. Continue. Well, it's not really that big a sin. So with that, 
what I want to do today on the same thought line. I gave it to you that every human being at one point in their lives was captive to sin. That was the definition. Now, I want to try to help compare it. I want to compare it to some other words. In the New Testament, in the Greek text, there are five Greek words that actually come from the uh, Roman society's judicial system. Okay? It's a legal vocabulary. I mean, I really don't have another way of describing it. It comes from the study in the field of law, a legal background. So I'm going to give you these five words. And, and I'm going to try to help you now that you were here last week. You know the definition of redemption. Okay. Now I want to show you five words that I want you to compare to buying out of slavery. Okay. Purchasing a slave. Now I want you to compare these. De Cairo, de Cairo, first word. It literally means an acquittal in court, all right? You have been acquitted of a crime, de Cairo, de Cairo, okay? The Bible translates it justification, de Cairo. Another word, aphidomy, aphidomy, okay? That means to cancel a debt, to cancel a debt. It has to do with a, a penalty or, or, or a price and it's paid. If You will hear sometimes people go to court and they are fined. Okay. A fee to me is to pay that off. It's paid off. Okay. In the Bible, it is translated forgiveness. So we have justification and forgiveness. All right. Huathesa is another word. And it literally means, in Roman law, adoption. Adoption. Huathesa. The Bible translated sonship. Sonship. Fourth word. Cataluresa. Lureso, kata lureso, okay? Its meaning is reconciliation. It is translated in the New Testament as reconciliation, okay? Kata lureso. Fifth word, opolutraso or trasas. Opolotrasus. It means, in the New Testament, it is translated redeem. It literally means to purchase, to set free. During the Civil War, a rich man would get drafted into the army. And he had the ability to pay a poor man... To take his place. Okay. He would give that money. To the family. And that guy would go serve his. Military. Uh, time. Okay. Now let me try to help you with this. Because. These are biblical terms. That. Some of us may have paid attention to. Some of us may not have paid attention to. Hey, whatever. Okay. Let me see if I can. Help you. In justification, the first one, the sinner stands before God accused, but he or she is declared righteous. That's justification. In forgiveness, the sinner stands before God as a debtor and receives the cancellation of his or her debt. Okay? In adoption, the sinner stands before God as a stranger. But he or she 
is made a son. In reconciliation, the sinner stands before God as an enemy. But he is made a friend. In redemption, the sinner stands before God as a slave. And he or she receives their freedom. Okay? Got that? All of these terms speak of the greatest miracle ever. And it's not best out of five, best out of six. It is all of these, and they all happen in the midst of the greatest miracle ever. I was listening to a man describe... uh, I don't even know if I want to use this illustration, but I'm going to use it anyway. He comes from a background of uh, wanting to see healings and miracles. Okay, that's his theology. And he talks about working out at a gym and all these people coming in with injuries from working out at the gym and how he can lay hands on them and pray for them and their pain goes away. And he, he says, well, what do you think about that? I said, I'd find another gym if everybody's hurting. <laughs> I mean, go somewhere else if all you're doing is tearing biceps and shoulders and all the rest of it. And he said, well, you know, I go in there at 5 o'clock. And I was like, that's another problem, bud. Anybody that wants to get up and exercise at 5 o'clock in the morning is demon-possessed. And he didn't appreciate that. But, oh, well, I hear that a lot. I hear that a uh, extensively I want a healing I want to see a whiz bang I want to see a miracle I want to see whatever and yet I sit there and I think about what I just gave you in the doctrine of salvation is the single greatest miracle that has ever been worked in the history of creation I do not understand that's not enough to be justified To be adopted? To be redeemed? That isn't enough? My God! You want more? You stand before a holy God, righteous? And you want more. You want more. Well, more does... No! Walk saved! There is no greater miracle Ever. And I watch people who are so flippant with their salvation that you just scratch your head. Do you not understand you have been redeemed? Do you not understand that redemption is in Him? This is salvation. This is over the head theology because I listen to people and I watch people and they're clueless about this. And it is frustrating as a brother in Christ and as a pastor. All of this, justification, forgiveness, adoption, reconciliation, redemption. These are all provided because Jesus Christ paid the price at the slave traders show. He paid it all. Paid in full. There's nothing lingering. It is finished. It is finished. And yet we walk around like we expect something else. And I'm sitting there going, before a holy God, you are just. Before a holy God who despises sin, you are forgiven. Before a holy God, you were an enemy and now you are adopted as a child. Before a holy God, you were reconciled to him and you were set free from your slave master. Before a holy God, you have been redeemed. We were accused and Jesus Christ bore our punishment. Jesus Christ experienced one thing that a Christian can never, ever endure. No temptation that sees you, but that is common to man. God is faithful and he provides a way out that you may stand. There is one thing that Jesus Christ endured that you and I can never understand. 
Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? I can never experience that. If you're truly saved today, you can never experience that. Because you have been justified. You have been redeemed. You have been adopted. You've been bought and paid for with a price. And you want another sign, another wonder? We are set free. We do not have to deal with sin anymore. It does not have the victory over us. It does not have the power over us. And yet we incessantly go back to it. And the reason is, I believe, that we don't understand the theology that is behind the doctrine of salvation. We don't get it. We don't get it. We think it is inevitable that someone thinks, hey, something about me he really liked. There isn't. You can't get man's will in any form in salvation. It's a non-existent entity. And yet, what do we do? We inevitably, at some point in another, something comes cruising through our head. And it is not pleasing to God. And why do you want to go back there? Why do you want to go back there? It doesn't make sense. And in some cases, I look at it and say, you know, people just don't know. They have no idea. Salvation is them. Say this prayer. You're saved. Do you realize what just happened to you? Do you realize that the plan of your salvation was before there was an existence? Before the foundations of the earth. You know, there was no time, space, or matter. Didn't exist. And he already knew who we were. We are debtors. And he paid the debt. We were strangers. And he is a son, Jesus is. And we are in him. And if we are in him, then guess what? We are no longer strangers. We are sons. We were enemies. But Jesus was God's friend. Therefore, because I am in him, I am a friend of God. To the point the Apostle Paul freaked out over and he says, we can call him Abba. Abba. You know what that is? Daddy. I can go to the creator of existence and call him Daddy. I remember watching kids in Jerusalem years ago when I was there. And they were running around going, Abba, Abba, Abba. And they were wanting candy and whatever was going on. They, they've got a holiday of Purim, which is a celebration of the book of Esther. And best I can describe it, it looks like a, a, a holy Halloween. You dress up and... People are giving you candy and they're all running around. Abba, Abba, look, you know, like, oh, you guys going to have toothaches too. We can call God the creator. And then yet we look this morning at Job and Job had a fear of the Lord, had a fear of God. Had a, and he shunned evil. One of the things that I think that we don't shun evil is that we don't fear God. And you know what? It's still going to freak you out when you see him. Because he's still God. And he'll say, well done, true and faithful servant. But it's going to freak you out. There he is who knows all things before all things even happen. We were enemies and now we are a friend. We were slaves and he came to earth into the slave market and bought our freedom. Let me share with you something. All of those, all of those are terms. But they are nothing more than different aspects of our salvation. It's like. Uh, have ever seen a raw diamond? I mean when you look at it. You just look at it. And like it's. What the heck? Okay. It's, it's kind of milky. And it, you just look at it. And you think. And it looks like a chunk. A, a broken tooth or something. 
You just look at it and you're like, hey, I'm glad we give a lot of money for that. But then you watch it go to a jeweler or a craftsman and he takes that thing that looks like a tooth and all of a sudden it becomes crystal clear and it he puts facets on it all over the place. And then he'll taper it down on one side so that it helps it mount. And then the light will come through the top of it and reflect out through the bottom of it and you just sit there in awe of what happened to that tooth. And they call those facets. And the more facets that are on a diamond, the higher the value. The more facets on a diamond, the clearer it is. The more facets that are on a diamond, the more color you see. That's what yours and my salvation is. I know. You never thought you'd be compared to a tooth. But you never thought you'd be compared to a Jesus biscuit either. So... Hang in there. But you see what I'm trying to get at? Because all of this is salvation. It isn't, well, you're justified, therefore you're saved. Amen. You're reconciled, therefore you're saved. Amen. But it's all the different facets of a diamond. And God's craftsmanship said, before the foundations of the earth, look what I shall do. A diamond didn't jump out of the ground and say, hey, I'm going to be pretty today. It don't work that way. All of those terms are the different aspects of our salvation. We're looking at five things here for the aspects of just redemption. So all of a sudden now this thing starts multiplying. Look at the different aspects of justification. You were accused. Guilty as proverbial sin. And you were acquitted. You were acquitted. And it wasn't because there wasn't enough evidence. It wasn't because there wasn't enough eyewitnesses. It was because of the good, loving grace of our God and Savior. That's the only reason. See, brothers and sisters, that is the doctrine of salvation. And it is amazing. I have talked to pastors who don't even know what they were saved from. How in the world are you saved if you don't know from what? It's amazing to me. It's stunning to me. What I wanted you to see in the comparison between the definition of redemption... And the comparison of the five legal words that are the same is that now you can contrast it. But you have to put them all together to get salvation. And the Apostle Paul, he starts this thing off with the aspects of blessing. And then he got in and keeps moving and he's going to roll through this letter and just freak you out because I watch people who want to look at chapters 3, 4, 5 and 6 and say, "Well, I must be doing these things." And you know what? You can't. That's like a diamond saying, "Hey, I think I'll cut myself today." It can't. It takes an outside source. And that outside source says, when I remove the rough edges, look at what I have. And it will be a slave who will bring honor to his master. It will be a master who honors those who work underneath him. It will be a husband who loves his wife as Christ loved the church and gave himself. It will be children that honor their parents. And they can't do that without understanding the first three chapters of this book. Because now I understand what is in my possession. I got five things that we're going to look at in the aspects of redemption. The Lord Jesus Christ bought us from the slavery of sin. People do not look at sin as a slave master. I have I've never seen. <laughs> we have big ones. Now that's a master. Okay, but what about coveting? 
I got one that no one struggles with at all. It's an easy one. Pride. Still sin. I mean, if you look at the doctrine of salvation and what I just gave you, these five words, how in the world do you have pride about anything? You should be overwhelmed with gratitude. With gratitude. But I don't want to disappoint you. I don't want everybody to just walk out of here and say, well, today, after what I've heard and the six facets of my diamond, I shall go forth being careful of pride and let my little light shine. Okay? I can tell you this. Good luck with that. Okay? The last letter that the Apostle Paul ever wrote, okay, shortly before he had his head removed, okay, 2 Timothy. He's in the Mamatine prison. He knows that they're going to kill him. He just doesn't know how. The prison was set up on the sewer system of the city of Rome. And if they got too many prisoners, instead of putting them through a trial, they would just open these doors and these cells would be flushed into the sewer. And all of those people, if you could hold your breath for a long time, you could come out of it and survive. Okay? No one ever did. But... I guess, if you wanted to hope. Now, everybody would know you came out of the Mamatine prison because of your odor. That's where the Apostle Paul's last days were before he was executed. And he writes his young disciple that he's invested himself in, knowing that his race is run, and now it's going to be Timothy's turn to pick it up and go. Okay? Second Timothy chapter three, verse one. But realize this. Okay, now remember what I just told you where Paul's at. Okay, and you know where his life's been. I mean, he's, he's had, had his moments. He was stoned and left for dead, uh, bitten by a poisonous snake, uh, really didn't have anybody who really trusted him a lot. He was sent to the Gentiles with the Jews despised. All right. And here's what he says. But realize this. In the last days, difficult times will come. <laughs> Yo, dude. You're telling me it's going to get worse than where you're at and what you've been through. It's going to get worse. In the last days. You know when the last days started? Bethlehem of Judea, the birth of that child, the last days began. Okay? So, in the last days, difficult times will come. Right? For men will be lovers of self, lovers of money, boastful, arrogant, revilers, disobedient to parents... Ungrateful, unholy, unloving, irreconcilable, malicious gossips, without self-control, brutal, haters of good, treacherous, reckless, conceited, lovers of pleasures rather than lovers of God. Holding to a form of godliness, although they have denied the power, avoid such men as these. For among them are those who enter into the household and captivate weak women weighed down with sin, led on by various impulses, always learning and never able to come to the knowledge of the truth. Okay, now, I have watched people and read people and heard people who deal with this text, and it's amazing, and they said, well, Paul's telling Timothy to watch out for lost people. What? I know lost people. I know a whole bunch of lost people. And I ain't never seen one of them have a form of godliness. They ain't never seen it. 
They will come to me, maybe my shop or something like that. And it's really comical because they know what I, my real job is. And they'll come and they'll use profanity and they apologize to me. The weirdest thing I've ever seen in my life. Well, you know, I'm, I didn't mean to use that word. Really? It sure fell out of your mouth pretty easy. I, that, it's amazing. They won't apologize to me. And I'm like, why are you apologizing to me? Well, doesn't that offend you? It does offend my boss. Okay? It doesn't offend me. It doesn't bother me at all. And they look at me and say, well, why not? I says, because out of the mouth speaks the heart. Well, what do you mean by that? I'll let you ponder it and see if you can come up with a, a definition. Brothers and sisters, in the last days, which began at the birth of Christ, difficult times will come. Okay, who is he writing to? His disciple. Who's going to do what? Continue to carry the banner of the Apostle Paul. I'm going to continue what? Reaching the Gentiles with the gospel of Jesus Christ. You know what he's describing here? The church. The church. You guys know that I uh, really like history. And I can go back and show you since 100 AD to today, this text. 100 AD. John left at 90 AD. And yet at 100 AD, Eubius, who was a, an elder in the church at Ephesus, who had John as a member, the apostle John, as a member, was dealing with this very text in the church in Ephesus. This is the same Ephesus that Jesus says, take a letter to them. You're amazing. Your doctrine is good. You even hold up against the false teachers. You are doing greater works today than you did in the beginning. And you're expanding on it. But I have this against you. What was it? Return to your first love. Do you understand that he wrote that in 90 A.D. And within 100 A.D., 10 years later, UBS is dealing with the same thing? You know what I call that where I come from? Short attention span. Paul told young Timothy in his last letters, Do you understand? Men will be lovers of self. Every time I watch the church end up in the ditch, you know what the number one reason is? They love themselves. And you know what? It's really amazing when you think about it. Because it's not difficult to love yourself. I'm my bestest ever friend. Because I've been stuck with me for a long time. Charles Spurgeon on this text says, Lovers of self is the sewer pipe that the rest of this pours forth. And I was like, yeah, you're right. The greatest men that I have been the privilege of being and just sat down and to chit-chat with, well, you know what? It was amazing to me about every one of them that I had in common. It was not about them. They wanted to know what I was doing. That's bizarre to me. Dude, I got 30 people. I ain't doing nothing. What are you doing? But they always wanted to know what I was doing. What about my children? What about the church that I... When I went to Russia, what was I doing? What was that like? And I'm talking about people like Adrian Rogers. His daggone church is several blocks large. That thing's like a... I don't even know how to describe it. First time I thought, I thought it was a mall. And then I seen one of them Baptist white steeples on the end of it. I was like, what in the world is that? Well, it's a church. That ain't a church. That is a compound. 
I went and seen him preach on a Wednesday night and I was standing up in the balcony. He was about that tall. And that thing was packed on a Wednesday night. And they had this great big movie screen behind him so I could see what he looked like. I was amazed. Then I sat down and talked to him. He's got that big, deep voice. I think we all want to sound like that when we get to heaven. I wish I had a voice like that. But you know what's amazing about it? He's about that tall. And how in the world do you get that voice out of that little container? Stephen Olfer the same way. He was preaching the gospel to guys that were going over to Dunkirk to bring the uh, British off the beach. I don't know. You know what I want to know? What are you doing? How's your church? His son even came here and spoke when we dedicated the building. And yet they, they're known all over the world. He, uh, he looked at, he was the first pastor to televise his sermons. 1954. You know where he televised from? 1123 Broadway in New York, New York. Church still stands about four blocks away from where the trade centers was. He televised out of there in 19. First guy to televise his sermons. He's the guy who told Billy Graham that if he didn't use the Holy Spirit, he'd be useless. They took him into the Welsh countryside to a cabin is what I call it. A cottage, whatever you want to call it. And they spent a week there. Figuring out the Holy Spirit. Billy Graham was completely ignorant of what the Holy Spirit did. When he got done, he went back to Wembley Stadium. And at Youth for Christ rally, where it was all teenagers, he preached for an hour and 45 minutes to teenagers. Really? How did he do that? He figured out what the power of the Holy Spirit was. And yet, when he talked to me, he wanted to know, how is my ministry? He wanted to know, what can he pray for in my ministry? He wanted to know about my kids. You know what that is? That's a person who's not a lover of self. I sat and had a barbecue with Dr. MacArthur and R.C. Sproul and Dr. Provost. And I was so thankful that they got stuff on their face like me. And I was like, man, these, these guys can eat this and nothing touches them. But they, it does. They wanted to know how. How we were doing what we were doing in the lands of Russia. That's amazing to me. But they're not lovers of self. You know what? Finding someone who's a lover of self is simple because they're so plentiful. When you find someone who isn't, that's when you're stunned. You're like, wait a minute. What is this? Paul warned Timothy that difficult times were coming because what was going to happen in the body of Christ is that people were going to become self-absorbed. And when you become self-absorbed, lover of money is easy. Why? Because it's about me and I need money. Boastful, arrogant, really? You know what? If I had a nickel for every person that I ran into who was boastful and arrogant, I would never need any money. Disobedient to parents. Has anybody figured out who teaches our kids to be disobedient to their parents? I've never figured that out. What school do they go to? Revilers is just what it sounds like. If you're a lover of self, it's easy to revile people. Why? Because it's all about who? Self. Do you see what happens? These are the same people that was that nasty old opaque stone that got cut into a diamond and now they're worried about themselves. That's amazing. How does that happen? Well, according to the Apostle Paul, we're old clay pots, earthen vessels with precious treasure inside. 
But for some reason, we're bound and determined to think that I'm the prettiest vessel. No. Disobedient to parents. The parents who have unconditional love for those children. Who sacrifice their lives, their livelihood, their money, their time, their energy, and the kids. Why do you have to teach your children to say thank you? Why don't they understand that everything they have has been given to them? And yet you got to tell them, you know, you ought to thank somebody for that. No, I deserved it. Ungrateful, unholy, unloving, irreconcilable, malicious gossips without self-control, brutal, haters of good, treacherous. Do you see what he's saying here? This is what the body of Christ can look like, Timothy. Be warned. Seven churches in Asia Minor. Listen, you've got to understand something. They're all seven churches. Jesus Christ did not confuse them. Wow, that wasn't really a church. Why did I call them a church? Three of them passed. Two of them are persecuted. It's amazing. They are lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. All of my great spiritual trips were such pleasurous trips. There's nothing like going to Russia in the winter. There's nothing like going to Azerbaijan where everything smells like my shop. It all smells like oil. And you got to keep your head down. Blonde haired blue eye, and 98% Muslim. Really? What are you doing here? I lost. I took a left in Texas, and here I are. See what I'm trying to get at? We are not our own. We must decrease. He must increase. We want the beauty of that stone to be seen. Why? Because who is the craftsman? Remember what we're supposed to do? Bless the Lord God of our, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. What you see in me is good is how awesome my God is. It ain't anything I did. It isn't my education. It isn't my good looks. I know. I'm pushing it, Terry. Do you see what I'm trying to get at? We have to start understanding the doctrine of our salvation. And once you get into that place, how in the world do you ever become a lover of self? How do you ever worry about the love of money? How can you not honor your parents when you realize that it was God's foreknowledge that put you in that place? God says, this is where you need to be. Holding to a form of godliness, although they have denied its power. Man, how many times have I seen that? How many times have I seen that? And it says here, avoid such men as these. You know what's amazing is? Among them are those who enter into the households and captivate weak women weighed down with sin and led on by various impulses, always learning, never able to come to the knowledge of truth. Ever heard the phrase out of Hebrews? Though some of you ought to be teachers by now, have to be taught the elementary principles. It's an interesting thought when you think about it. Weighed down by sin and led on by impulses, always learning, never able to come to the knowledge. It's amazing. It's amazing. Brothers and sisters, I wanted you to see the beauty of our salvation. But I also wanted to give you the warning. Okay? Five aspects of redemption. One, the redeemer. Two is the redeemed. Three, the redemptive price. Four, the redemptive results. And five, the redemptive reasons. We will begin this task next week. Remember these principles. 
You need to understand the magnitude of our salvation because it is the single greatest miracle ever in the history of creation. And it was planned out before the foundations of the world. And you are living proof of the fulfillment of that plan. That's awesome. That's totally awesome. Now let us go forth from here that we can decrease and that he may increase. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you that even in the midst of the beauty of our salvation, there is the warning. Father, thank you that you have delivered us from the bondage of sin and death. Father, thank you that 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 holds humanity captive, we have been set free from. Father, help us. Help us to understand the beauty of this salvation, how great a salvation that this is. But, Father, help us to be on guard that we do not become lovers of self. Father, we do not become lovers of money, arrogant, boastful, revilers, disobedient, ungrateful, and so on and so forth. Father, it is the tendency. You crush churches who step into these venues. Let it not be us. Father, let us. Walk in a manner worthy of this great calling that the beauty of our salvation will radiate in such a way that men and women would be attracted to it. Father, we thank you and we praise you and we love you in Christ's name. Amen.